Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Growing a business can be challenging, and the benefit of hindsight really is 2020. But what would we do if we knew what we knew about growth now, back then? How would we do it differently if we got to play it all out once again? I'm Richard Wood. I run the marketing agency Six and Flow. I've worked in marketing for around about 18 years now, and I'm a massive believer in that people should be trying to engage with people on a human level, not just treating people as leads and kind of numbers in a spreadsheet anymore. I'm Joe Glover. I'm the founder of the Marketing Meetup. It's a community of 14,000 marketers around the UK and established very much on the basis of looking after each other and uh, just looking at marketing in, in a way where the humans come first. Marketing, sales and business growth has certainly changed over the last few years. And at a guess, both of us have made considerable mistakes along the way. We've tried marketing tactics we're not proud of, tested channels that burnt through money and tried services that were doomed to fail. But importantly, we tried and we learned. In this episode, Joe and I are gonna do a bit of reminiscing about all the things we've ballsed up and how we do it differently, knowing what we know now about marketing and sales. So Joe, to start off with, I think it'd be great for us to go through what are the top 10 things that we would do again if we were to start our businesses now. So you have the marketing meetup. So you have a business that is uh, centered around events. You're bringing people together. You have a sponsorship model and some other kind of commercials behind it. I run a marketing agency. And uh, so you've, your business has been going for how long now? Uh, about four years now. Okay. Uh, my business has been going for about four and a half years. And both of us, that's not our first foray into the, the marketing or business world. So what are some of the lessons that we've learned? So let's go through top 10 things that we would do again, knowing what we know now, what would we do differently? Well, in at number one, uh, and we have a list. So we've been so prepared this week. It's unreal. <laughs> but um, I think one of the biggest wins that I had when I started out was that I decided to start with the unscalable. It wasn't something that was like a conscious decision, but it was certainly something where I was like, you know, I'm just going to do the things that are truly going to make people feel special when engaging with my events. I've given examples in previous episodes, but that's ranged from writing personalized Christmas cards to every attendee that comes to the event, cutting out medals when we won Cambridge's favorite networking event. We gave a pound coin to every attendee to go and make someone else's day the next day. And all these activities are something that are like completely unscalable, but they're the types of things that built a brand uh, and built an image that has sort of carried us through for the next four years. So I'd really start with the unscalable activities. If I was starting again, my business be, would be very much about how can I look to improve that life of that one person that I want to benefit and then just go from there. So that would be entirely my first thing. So you, you gave a quid to every single attendee on an evening. How many attendees? There was about, I think there was 120 on that night. So it was, yeah. Um, 
what do you reckon the ROI was off the back of that? I don't even know. I, I have no idea. Uh, genuinely no idea. Um, do you care? No, not really. Uh, I had one of the best days of my life the next day because the thing that we asked people to do was uh, tweet in what they did with the quid. I just had like the best day ever just reading all these things that, that people chose to do. And it ranged from people giving the quid to the person in front of them in, in the shopping queue to a few folks who decided to up the quid, but use that pound coin as a prompt to send flowers to their mum or something like that, which was just wicked and, and, and so much in line with everything we're trying to achieve. How many, so from 120 people that you gave a quid to and asked them to go away and do something nice, yeah. how many tweets did you get back of them showing you they did something nice and how many do you reckon just pocketed the cash? Oh, well, I, I can tell you because I got about 25, 30 tweets the next day which was incredible. So 95 people outright assholes. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> 100 I even got a couple of stories back, you know, where people are like, yeah, I just bought some milk the next day. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, that's not the point. But I, I appreciate that, you know, people are busy and stuff like that. But it, it did also teach me a lesson that even if you you lead some people to water, then you're never going to quite get a hundred percent conversion rate. So uh, that was a lesson learned too. <laughs> but it's a good example of showing, not just telling people that you care for them, um, that you, you're literally putting your money where your mouth is and saying, look, we want you to do something and we're going to pay for you to do it, which I thought was uh, pretty cool. So show, don't tell. How about you? What's your number one? Having having done it at sort of various different businesses at different stages and kind of across different, I said like over the last ten to fifteen years in different guises, and with different kind of user adoption rates and things like that, the one thing that has always remained as a constant has been the value in email marketing. Now, where that value comes from in email marketing has fluctuated with the types and what's going on, but I think focusing on the owned media is definitely something that I would bring to the forefront because so even with our own business now it's only ever really been something that's been happening in the background we have an RSS email that generates itself off the blog content once a week that gets sent to anybody who's in the subscriber list and we've never done that justice ever and it's only recently that we've redesigned that we're putting a lot of more emphasis in the content and we've scrubbed out that list and made sure that we're sending out to the right people but the impact that we've had off it already has been amazing and we're we're building that and we have our chatbots and our our forms and all those kind of things focusing more heavily on that and it's become another strategy for us and i think one of the things that i've seen over the last few weeks is i'm going through a process where i'm trying to move my own personal brand where i've been using a lot of earned media so uh, social speaking engagements events all that kind of stuff and I'm now trying to transition that from earned through to owned because earned, if, for example, LinkedIn turned off my LinkedIn tomorrow, I would have absolutely nothing to show off the back of that and there'd be nothing I could do about it. Whereas with owned, I can communicate with those people as much as I feel like I should. So the, the cadence is up to me. There are no algorithms in the way of how many people are actually going to see it. And I think that's quite often overlooked at, in businesses when you're starting out is the importance of owning that list and using it appropriately. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I, I've got an example in my own business where this happened too. Uh, so we established everything on meetup.com where there was a real prime advantage where we had accessibility to the audience because folks were looking for events. But 
when people signed up for events, they only did it through Meetup, which means that even to this day, the majority of our audience is still locked into the meetup.com platform. And we're you know, still going through that t- transition where we're trying to get people over to our MailChimp list now, where we're able to sort of have that data for ourselves, you know, and it's not about like being greedy for data or anything like that. It's just if Meetup was to go belly up, which, you know, I haven't looked at the financial reports or anything like that, but I'm sure they're going to be going through a tough time right now. You know, that's a large chunk of our audience that we lose. I think that's a really, really, really good point that you've just made. And it's one that you don't necessarily consider when you're signing up for these bits of technology and stuff like that. But the implications are, are really serious for your business going forward. So uh, owning your data and owning your media is, is absolutely vital. And owning owning that data as well, it doesn't it doesn't just then pigeonhole you into using that across email because if you have access to that information, you can then use that in other channels. So you could use that for different uh, audience types. You can start to target people across the social and search paid activity. Mm-hmm. So there's all sorts of stuff that you can start to do with that data, and it means that you have as a business, you've got far more insight into who is wanting to buy from you and their their habits so i think that for me is one of the lessons that um i took on i'm i think in one of my previous roles back when it was still in vogue and less frowned upon but i remember doing an awful lot of email marketing we bought like a data set of over eight hundred thousand people at one point and we were hitting those with emails and and like the return you get off of it was enough. Like it was still a, a numbers game. You send emails, you'll get an X amount of leads out of it. But that kind of activity, I wouldn't recommend that to anybody anymore. But that's how I used to look at email marketing. Somebody said email marketing, I was like, okay, yeah, we're going to spam a bunch of people. Now I look at it much more as connecting with an audience who actually wants to speak to you. And it kind of plays into the whole inbound marketing side of things. But and the other thing as well is dropping the shiny HTML from emails. Like we barely send any of them anymore. It is all more human written, conversational at its intent and trying to move away from just click through rates and opens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, you, you've previously spoken about um, how you tend to target conversations rather than opens and clicks uh, yep. now, which uh, I think is a really great way of thinking about it. And actually, I've actually changed my own copy as a result of, of having that conversation with you in in emails. And it was as simple as uh, sending it in a more plain text style, but also yep. ask, asking a question. So I think a really crap example from the one the other day was our opening line was, how are you? Um, and I had a few people come back to me and just sort of say, I'm okay, you know, which is quite cool. You know, you don't often get that if you just send a, a broadcast email. So that was a really good tip. All right. What's next? I, I sort of switched halfway between your answer there. I was going to sort of speak about uh, owning your own media um, and the, the difficulty that we had about meetup.com. But um, as you spoke so eloquently about it, I'm going to, in fact, go back to my original one, uh, which was something that worked really well when we were starting out was that we uh, leveraged other people's audiences in my target market as much as possible. But by doing stuff that is genuinely useful, and that last point is really, uh, really, really crucial uh, because now I'm in the position which the folks I was approaching to, uh, approaching a few years ago uh, were in, which was that I now have an audience and I'm able to sort of get in touch with lots of people. But it means that I'm now getting 
tens and and tens and tens of emails every week saying, "Hey, I've got this thing. Do you mind sending it out to the community?" And that's not what it's about. You know, if I was to start this process again, I'd be really looking to understand what the person with the audience wants to get out. You know, what what their objectives are, and what working with you they would get out of it. So I'd always start it with a conversation, which is, you know, "Hey, Rich, how you doing? Do you mind if I?" I was going to say, take you for a coffee. I feel like that's A, impossible right now, but also B, quite a horrible call to action. So I'd actually say something far more specific. It would be like, hey, Rich, I know you're trying to achieve X. I do Y. Here's how I can help you with Z. Do you mind if we have a five-minute chat about it? And that sort of conversation, which is very specific uh, with a very specific act, but is also targeted at the individual who has the audience and saying that you want to help them, is a real sort of gateway into getting them on favor to then sort of be more willing to distribute stuff to their audiences as well. So, and I think like other people's audiences, we categorically built our business through leveraging other people's audiences in a slightly different way, but same principle. And it wasn't always asked, but it was mutually beneficial. So we we have always been the first agency to put up the hand when HubSpot needs help with content or they're running a webinar and they need a partner's insight. So we are always the first to kind of hitch our brand to brands bigger than us. We do it with HubSpot, we do it with Drift. And mm-hmm. it's it's not us just flogging a relationship. There's genuine value in both sides. But that's how we've always approached this. If we can help them, it helps us in the long run. But I think the other thing to be aware of is you can actually engage with people's audiences without their direct involvement in it as well. So if you think about when you have a LinkedIn post that goes out, if you are writing about somebody or talking about somebody, you've just written some content. So say I'm running about the marketing meetup Mm -hmm. and because I've attended it. I want people to read that blog post for whatever reason. They're going to come to that. They're going to click on a CTA, download a guide, whatever that might be. But when I'm posting that, I'm going to tag in Joe. I'm mm-hmm. going to tag in the marketing meetup because everybody in your um, sphere will then be ping saying Joe has been mentioned in this article. So I'm already tapping into your audience in a very similar way. That to me is, that's okay. Like I don't, I don't see any issue with that at all. I am using your audience, but I am also promoting you at the same time. So I think as long as you've got that element of, like you are still getting something out of it, then I think that is okay. No, hundred percent agree. It's, you know, we're all human and all looking to get stuff from stuff, you know? So I think it's, as long as there's that value exchange, I think it's all good. I think the mistake a lot of people make is making the ask too early. Um, if they are looking to engage with you directly, which inevitably turns you off and, and leads to a no, unfortunately, in a lot of cases, because these folks get a lot of it's an analogy that's been done to death, but the one that I always come back to is like you you don't offer marriage on the first date. No. Like you have to you have to I mean it was at least a second date for us and there was a lot of <laughs> a lot of booze in between, but yeah, I think it's it, you have to play the relationship at a velocity or with enough nurturing for the value of what you're trying to take back out of it. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. How about you? Number two. I'd be more consistent with our messaging and how we're using that messaging. So one of the mistakes that we made as an agency, and I think every single agency makes this when they start out, because you're 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 chasing dollars and pound signs, like you need to bring in revenue to survive as a business. 
and you are very quick to put your hand up and say, yep, we'll do it. And it, you'll then figure it out. And that is a necessity at the beginning quite often, but it doesn't help you in the longer term because you want to not necessarily drive into a niche because HubSpot has always promoted agency should have a niche, be the best in your niche. If you're not the best, find a different niche or make the niche smaller until you are the best. And I, I appreciate that you become an expert in that field, but also as a business that opens you up to other things. So like the agencies that niched in travel and things like that at the moment are not a great position, but our messaging at the beginning as a business was way too wide. We, we've always talked about being a growth agency and that's because I didn't want to pigeonhole ourselves just into doing digital. I've always wanted to do uh, events. Maybe we'll do some PR, like there's other elements to marketing that aren't just digital. So we've always talked about growth, but we were a growth agency for uh, high net worth at the beginning. So we worked a lot with investment companies and then we moved, we figured out there's a lot of arseholes in that market. So we moved across to, and some who aren't arseholes, I must say, as we <laughs> still have some clients there. And uh, and then we moved across more into B2B and then to the tech and the SaaS space where we sit now. But it's only in the, I'd say the last two years that we really started to hone down on our messaging, who we help, how we help them and what it is that we do. And now that we've got that messaging, we've got our tone of voice, being consistent with it. So that one of the biggest lessons I've learned over the last, I'd say, six months is being consistent with having a voice, not necessarily what that voice is, but having a voice and consistently posting, consistently sending, not not to the point where you're spamming people, but trying to give value and keeping a message out there so that you are front and center. And since we've focused on consistency. So we're now, as a business, we have blogging going out every day. Our internal marketing lead is, I've set him a task of produce, uh, releasing 10 pieces of content every day. So not, not necessarily blog content, but blogs, videos, tweets, posts. So 10, 10 things going out every day. We're not quite there yet, but that's, now that we've got all this activity, you can see the impact. It's like we're being invited to speaking gigs to attend podcasts we've won i think three clients that have directly come through linkedin or because they've seen some of the stuff that we're doing on linkedin we've we booked uh 30 meetings out in toronto before we flew out there all through linkedin engagement and all of this is because we've had a consistent voice we've always had a presence but it's that consistency that has hammered through the return I think that's really interesting, and there's something that I sort of add to that in in a in a way, which is it's amazing how quickly people pick up on that. Um, and I'd say that in the context of an experience I've had quite recently, where I've been starting to post more consistently uh, a, a style of image. So we've got an illustrator who illustrates in a certain style. I've seen they look good. Yeah, they they look really good, and it's just on Fiverr and, and very easy. But like I've only been doing that for about six eight weeks or something like that and then to test it out a little bit the other day i did a post on linkedin which was uh, i got five images from, from five different illustrators for the marketing meetup awards that we're going to be using we're, we're going to be doing soon and i said you know comment on here with which image you think is the nicest or the best and we'll use that one and the overwhelming sentiment within those comments was number one which was the image in our typical style because that's what the marketing meetup looks like. 
And that's despite like three and a half years of us sort of having a scattergun, whatever. So like, you know, these, these past couple of months using this one illustrator where people are like, yeah, that's you. But yeah, I, I think it's it's amazing that how quickly people start to revert to aesthetics around what makes up your brand and that they are the things like we're visual people, obviously, and they then trigger feelings for people. And then how quickly people associate it with it. If you were to then change it, they'd start to freak out. OK, number five. So to, to completely mirror what you were just saying, then over the past few years, I've been building my sort of LinkedIn and personal brand by posting consistently just doing my best to help the community. And really, particularly at the moment with the coronavirus stuff, then my personal brand has become a really, really important marketing channel for the marketing meetup because we're not able to do the stuff that we used to do at events. It used to be that at the end of an event, we'll be able to go, here's the date for the next one. And you get like 50, 60 signups there and then. But we can't do that anymore. So stuff is going out via my own LinkedIn. I'm very mindful of not being too silly on there. So to go back to one of your, your points the other day, I'd probably look to do one sales like pitch or post um, to every four that was more like giving and just thought thoughty. Um, so I, I, that's just been a really, really great thing for, for me personally, but also the business. So I'm not going to labor this one because you've already spoken about it, but just focusing on LinkedIn, not over relying on it because as to your point about looking to own your own media i think that's really important but right now there is an opportunity on linkedin and, and that has been great for me i would have to say i'm a massive fan of linkedin at the moment i used to with all the social channels i i, I fall in and out of love very very quickly twitter twitter i go through like peaks and i find that I'm more engaged with Twitter, the more sarcastic at that point in time that I'm tweeting. And I end up, I think anybody I'm connected with will at some point end up being trolled in a loving way. But I think that's more what I use Twitter for. LinkedIn is obviously business related, but I've started to make it more, over the, I'd say over the last six months, I've started to make it more personable. There's a bit more color in it. Like I am a bit more forward with the way that I speak with it and it's more representative of me now. And I've I've found that that resonates with people. Like we've been running all sorts of tests across it and trying to figure out different stuff. And unsurprisingly, it's a controversial or sarcastic posts that tend to get the most engagement. And for our business, like you were saying, with what's going on in the world at the moment, I think it's one of those channels that is helping us fly through it. And I think we're we're in a much better place because of the work that we did prior to what's going on. For sure. And actually to add to that point, then that's been four years in the making to get to that point, you know? So I think people's expectation about personal brand is they could switch it on today and have results tomorrow, but it's just not that. Anyway, number six. I would bootstrap the technology I intended to grow. So I, I am a sucker for a shiny new SaaS toy. Like I cannot help but play with new toys and it's it's something that I enjoy doing, trying to figure out how I can mash together two tools to do a process in a different way. And I think quite often that's one of the things that attracts clients to us is that we're willing to experiment and learn and see what we can do that isn't normally done. And that is great, but I think if you were to look at the history of our tech stack, we have had an awful lot of toys in that process. So like the only 
consistent ones like that we've had from pretty much the beginning have been HubSpot. So we had that from day one and 15.5. So 15.5 is an amazing piece of kit and it's helped us communicate regularly with our team. And I'm pretty sure it's why we have such a low churn rate because we are often communicating and understanding what's going on behind the scenes and we can cut things off before they become an issue. So outside of that though, we've tried all manner of things. And I think what I would do now, knowing how the tools work and kind of cheating a little bit, but knowing the the trajectory and roadmaps of where those businesses are trying to get to, I would definitely pick the stack that I have now, but do it from a freemium level. So most of the tools that we use have a free entry level and then just ratchet them up as you get to the point that you need to then take them to the next level. So you, you now, now you need bots, you need extra sending capacity, you need an extra sales tool because you need a new seat for a new salesperson, like things like that. Just pick the stack, use all the free stuff as much as you can, learn how they work and then start paying for them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Interesting. And, and how far do you reckon that would have taken you? Like, do you think that you would have ended up paying quite a lot quite quickly or do you reckon for the first two years you would have been just fine? Having seen how we use the tools now, we've always paid for the tools that we use. Like, there's, It's very rare that we've used um, freemium on anything in our main tech stack. And I think knowing what I know now, if we'd taken the hit on being willing to have other people's branding and things like that, which mm-hmm. I think with things like calendar links and stuff like that is okay to a point, yeah. I'm pretty sure we probably could have got away with that for the first 18 to 24 months. That's amazing. I mean, imagine the amount of money you would have saved in the first two years. Yeah, let's not, <laughs> let's not have that conversation. <laughs> right, number seven. So I think one of the things that I've done really, really well with the marketing meetup is I've taken my time with it. It's been four years in the making. The first three were as a quote-unquote side hustle um, before taking it full-time a year ago. Possibly as a hangover from my first job, though, I've always had a real aversion to my m- money in in, uh, in my career. So my first job I took on the basis of you'll be on 100 grand after five years. you know, And that was literally the sole reason why I took it, and I hated every moment. So from that moment forward, what, I was just, what was the job or what was the role? It was a, as an SAP consultant. So I was uh, Ouch. building building financial uh, financial systems for FTSE companies. It just wasn't wasn't me. You know, fourteen hour days in a in a suit, not good. In any case, after that point, you know, it's just like I'm not going to live my life in a way which is optimized towards money. But I think the flip side of it is that I've built my business in a very sort of altruistic way. And and I I wouldn't have changed that for the world, but I would have sought more opportunities to make uh, money from it and and not be afraid to ask for money too. Because I I think in the world that we live in, there is an awful lot of people who give stuff away for free. And there's also a lot of technology available for free. And that's honestly absolutely wonderful. But I do think you know, if I was to work with you, for example, and you were to do a job for me, then I would have expected to pay you. And possibly in those moments, I, I shied away from that. And I kind of went, oh, no, it's all right. You know, you're a mate or whatever it is, you know, and, and, and did something for free, which I could have been paid for, which then I could have reinvested in my business, which meant I could have grown a little bit quicker. It's a reflection and it's a process and a journey that I'm on it right now, which is, 
you know, it's okay to ask for money because you're providing value. I know that sounds stupid as a business owner, but it's also just a very personal thing. So I think quite often, particularly in our industry, one of the things that people often forget when they are starting a business is that your asset or commodity to sell is your time, experience and knowledge. And if you're giving that away, you are giving away the things you have to sell. Yeah, there's as you're starting out there, you're you're kind of balancing, okay, is this going to help by putting me into somebody's audience? Or is this going to help because I'm going to sow some goodwill that I can then cash in on later? But I think sometimes we very quickly fall into the trap of helping mates. Yeah, you want us to help you spin up a WordPress website. Yeah, okay, we can do that. Yeah, you'll have to pay for hosting, but don't worry, we'll try and do the actual rollout for free. All those kind of things. It's okay to a point, but you need to very quickly get away from that because once you have worked for somebody on the cheap, they're never going to pay you what you're actually worth. And I think that's quite often where businesses forget to look at the opportunity cost, not just the initial time and labor cost. For sure. Absolutely. It's it's a long term thing. And and that's part of it'll be an interesting part of my journey going forward with the marketing meetup is that so much of our offering has been free for so long. The bet is that by building the audience and the incredible amount of goodwill that we've got towards the community, that when we continue selling workshops and conferences and, and, you know, due to the size alone of of the community, that um, we'll be able to have those conversations and people will be like yeah of course but i think uh, it's one of these things that you're, you're spot on that you do need to have that in mind at all times so number eight i would pay more attention to who it is i'm trying to sell to rather than what i'm actually trying to sell we've always been clear on the products and services that we're selling so it started out as paid media to her landing pages so lead gen stuff then it was HubSpot, then it became more about inbound, and then it became about conversational and ABM, and there's always been design and development and video services. All of these things have come in, and we've always been clear about what it is we're selling. It wasn't until probably about two and a half, three years ago that we really started to hone in on, all right, who is it I'm actually trying to sell this to, and what are their challenges? Like we had that on a base level, so like what are the challenges of these people? How are we trying to do it? And this is, it sounds stupid because this is exactly what we've always taught people to do, but we've never really done it that well for ourselves. And now we've got it really honed to the point we know who the people are, what the messaging needs to be to resonate with them, and what channels we need to approach them, and then what kind of funnel we need to push them through. Having that kind of understanding gives you so much more leverage. It gives you so much more power in that relationship. Not that I'm saying it's kind of a, a sales relationship it needs to be a, a power struggle, but it gives you it gives you an understanding of the the levers you need to pull, the way that you need to approach it, and how that process is going to end up. Because if you know where the process ends, you know where it starts and you start with the challenge that that person has, and you know where it ends, figuring out the bits in between, that becomes something you can test and play with, but ultimately it's a a journey process that you can build on. And I think quite often as businesses, we forget the who we're trying to sell to. And actually, to be fair, a lot of businesses are much, much better at it now, and I think that's because it's been hammered home. Figure out your personas, figure out what they need, blah, 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 blah. But I think now it's better and 
that's where people's focus should be when they're starting to think about taking their products or services to market rather than here's my product or service, who can I flog it to? Actually, that really ties into my number nine. So, or number nine, I hope you don't mind me skipping ahead. But one of the observations that I've had with the marketing meetup is that we started with our offering, which was events, and we, we sold sponsorships at those events. And we were basically just looking to cover costs. And it was sort of done on a very ad hoc basis. And it was like, yeah, your name will go up on, on the slide. Um, when the business started to grow into a business, then I decided to write things up in a deck. And whenever someone asked me for, you know, how much sponsorship and stuff like that was, I just used to send them the deck and like, go, this is it. You know, this is this is what you buy and this is what you uh, you get in return. The next evolution of that was that we had, we kind of went the other way really. And, and we said, okay, that deck never, ever worked. That deck whenever i sent it to anyone never converted once so we went the other way which is okay we're going to be the really creative guys we're going to be the people that come to you and say these are the 10 ideas that we want to implement and these are the things that can also add to our community so this is how we're going to do it the drawback of this kind of hyper personalized and hyper creative thing is that a lot of people don't have the headspace to sort of deal with those sort of ad hoc sort of crazy sort of opportunities and, and they want some standardization so where we're getting to now is a place where we're realizing i think pretty much on what you've just said is that every individual is going to have different needs and uh, it's going to be approaching your sales process differently so we've got a bit which is like the standard stuff which suits everyone which is what you'd expect from any sort of sponsorship relationship and then after that point we've got like the creative ideas the extra stuff that people can kind of really get behind the, the things that will truly add an awful lot of value with that package we'll probably end up gearing that very specifically to what the people want i've had quite a few conversations with people who sort of said look i'm just not game for those zany ideas you know i just want a logo up you know, and if they want that, that's absolutely fine. You know, so we'll, we'll tailor the email to, to those folks and, and that will be that. But if they want the more creative stuff because they come across as a creative person, then we'll also start sending that stuff through as well. That sales process and, and having something clear to sell, but then also tailoring that to certain individuals has, has been really effective in the past sort of 12 months or so. So I'd absolutely echo that. In one of the one of the most important things we've ever worked on in the business is our sales process. So we have an understanding of our sales metrics to a, a deep level. Like we have an understanding of how long it should take to sell, how long it should take to go from stage to stage, what are the conversion rates are, what are the drop-offs. And all of that has given us the ability to then test and tinker with and that has then meant that over a period of four years, we build a sales process that we know works very, very well for us and becomes its own showpiece, sells itself as part of our sales process because we help clients market, but we also help them develop their sales processes and then integrate that with the technology around it. So quite regularly, we have clients come to us and say, what you guys have just done to us, we want you to build that for us. So. It's, it is something that has been tinkered with, nurtured, played with, tested, loved, nurtured, cherished, all those kind of things over a long period of time. And we all have an understanding and we're regularly as a sales team, we meet as a growth team now actually because we've brought marketing and sales internally together as a team. 
we meet for an hour's meeting once a week on a Wednesday. We go through everything that we outline, goals, planned, challenges that we've had. And then the sales and marketing members of the team meet for a a daily 15-minute scrum just to make sure they're all on the same page to understand what's going on across it. And in those meetings, everybody is always bringing up ideas. How about we try this? What if we did this? Here's a here's a client that's starting to like slow down in the sales process. How could we nudge them back across the line? So that's the kind of thing that you can only really do that once you know what's happening in your sales process. 100%. I'm sure there's an episode in that alone as well. <laughs> <laughs> Sweet. So we'll go to number 10. So last but not least, and this is uh, as soon as these words come out of my mouth, everybody's going to groan, but I I would go all in on video sooner. We've been using video in our sales process for probably about two and a half, three years now. So fairly early on in adoption, but I wouldn't say we were kind of the first movers or anything like that, but we were fairly soon to adopt it. And that just absolutely changed the game in our sales process. And once it's changed the game in our sales process, we started looking at how can we use it in other parts of the business. So we use video across account management, sales, marketing, everywhere in the business, even like internal education stuff. We are sharing videos over text quite regularly. And I have always believed in video, but I've always looked at video until probably the last two years. Video is something that should be polished and kind of curated and nice looking but actually some of the videos that we get most traction from are the shooting from the hip more human more personable type videos and I would have done that way sooner and if I was if I was a a new business right now there would be two things that I would immediately bring into my marketing stack one would be video and the other would be conversational so whenever we start working with a new client if they don't have those things in place Obviously, there's reasons why some people wouldn't, but in most scenarios, we would definitely be like, let's get these in. They'll be part of the quick win solution, and then we'll build from there. I'm conscious of time, but I feel like that's a really important point. So where have you been using video specifically through your sales processes? And and also, you know, to your point about polished versus uh, unpolished and, and stuff like that. I mean, have you... Do you use like drift video as an example of, you know, something where you can literally record it from your webcam and send it off in three minutes flat? Do you use that in, in your sales process? And yeah. Stuff like so that? our our outreach is, so if it was um, cold prospecting, um, we don't normally do a lot of cold prospecting. It'd be more of a warm prospecting. So they'd be aware of the brand at least, but maybe not necessarily uh, engaged in our funnel. We would send them a personalized video in that initial outreach. We would use uh, Vidyard. Uh, you can also use Drift Video. You can also use Loom. Um, all three have free options associated to them, and all three have their own merits. We also use it for sharing proposals and quotes. So we we would share our screen talking through the quote with a video talking through why we've done certain things and suggested certain pricing. And then we we do it at different stages in the outreach sequences as well. We have run out of time, but hopefully those 10 ideas will give somebody an idea somewhere along the line of where they could use some different things. The main takeaway from me from all of that stuff is always be testing. So one of the main points that I had listed down here is that it's important to look at what other people are doing 
and making sure that and using them as inspiration and having them as kind of a guidance and yeah standing on the shoulders of giants great principle but always remember that actually just because something is working for somebody else doesn't mean that it's either going to work for you or not going to work for you so like regularly when people are saying channels are dead like it's one of my biggest kind of pet hates is that actually that could be working really well for somebody else in a different context so don't be afraid to try stuff that other people have failed at um hopefully some of these will give you guys a tip as well to very quickly echo that because um you know, even in our top tens, there's been a couple of contradictions or different stages of the journey that we're all on with very similar things. And that's just between the two of us, but that doesn't make one uniquely better or uniquely worse. It just means it's unique to us. And we've just shared those experiences. So I, I couldn't agree more. Quickly, because it's one of my favorite things to get out of podcasts. What's one book you would have read, you would read now, having not read it, knowing you're about to start a business? I've read Lost and Founder by Rand Fishkin quite recently. That was going to be on my list. Yeah, it just as much as anything, the emotional turmoil of being a founder. Um, I think Rand, that was the thing that I took from the book, that sort of roller coaster sort of spirit of, of being a founder. For me, it would be influence, Chowdini, Chowdini, Chowdini. Just because there's so many lessons you can take across that book to like feed into your marketing. As ever, if you guys want to reach out to us, you can reach out to me and Joe separately on Twitter. So I'm Rich T. Wood. I'm Joseph E. Clever. However, we have just created a Twitter account for Humans Come First. So if you search for Humans Come First on Twitter, so you now have a choice of reaching out to me, Joe, or Humans Come First, and we will come back to you. And that's it. Hopefully you've enjoyed that and found it useful. You've been listening to Humans Come First. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.